Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Mission accomplished! G.I. Joe and G.I. Joe Adventure Team Helicopter, each sold separately. Cholesterol levels of many Americans are too high, but for a group of people in New Jersey, cholesterol went down. They joined in a total dietary program to reduce cholesterol. Less fats, lean meats, egg and cheese substitutes, and highly polyunsaturated foods, including Promise Margarine. Promise is highly polyunsaturated. The results? Their average cholesterol level went down down significantly and promise tastes like butter promise mission log a roddenberry star trek podcast episode 83 the infinite vulcan and the magics of magus 2 from star trek the animated series wake up little cadet time for another Saturday morning edition of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week we watch Star Trek. One or two episodes, depending on the series, digging into them for messages and morals and things like that. Then we talk to you about those things. And you know what, Ken? Sometimes people talk to us about those things. They write to us, they call us, all kinds of stuff. If you would like to be one of those people who talks to us about things, you can. Contact us, Facebook, Skype, Twitter. The handle on all three of those places is Mission Log Pod. You can email us at missionlog at roddenberry.com. You can even call us at 323-522-5641. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But remember, kids, the phone is not a toy, so be sure and get your parents' permission before you do that. Uh, This week, as the computer let you know a moment ago, we will take on the Infinite Vulcan and the Magics of Magus 2. But before we do that... John will take on trivia. Awesome. Ken, I figured that this would be a good episode to talk about uh, kind of the the writing dynamic that went into Star Trek, the animated series. Um, The Infinite Vulcan was written by Walter Koenig. And uh, there is sort of a a very involved and and mostly very well-known story about how Walter Koenig was not hired to be part of the cast of uh, Star Trek, the animated series. Um, Leonard Nimoy is given credit and rightfully so with uh, with really going to bat for all of the secondary uh, characters. So the fact that we have Nichelle Nichols and uh, George Takei on the show is definitely credited to Nimoy fighting to have them as part of the show. Um, The one person who didn't make that cut was Walter Koenig. Right. Sad to say. Yeah. Well, Um, and the guy who played Call. (laughs) Right. I know you miss him. I know you do. I do. I do. Um, 
so there there are a few that didn't make the cut. Now, Walter had been uh, toying with the idea of writing uh, ever since the end of Star Trek, the original series. He, he had been pitching uh, DC Fontana and uh, kind of peripherally through that Gene Roddenberry uh, with at least one story idea. And this is a story that he pitched and got sort of turned into an animated episode, The Infinite Vulcan. And... Um, it's it, it sort of some people look at it as well. It, this was sort of the uh, the second prize, you know. Here, well, since we didn't hire you as an actor, here's the second prize you get to write. It, it is worth pointing out that Walter had wanted to write and had been getting his feet wet in writing already. Uh, so it was kind of a nice thing for him to be able to segue into that with Star Trek being one of his first sold shows. But as we'll see, Walter went on to write all kinds of other stories um, and definitely go look at his credits on IMDb. He's got all kinds of stuff that he has written. Also worth pointing out that Walter actually auditioned for the role of Caniclius in The Infinite Vulcan. He did not get the role. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of uh, odd. Kind of, yeah, odd and, and maybe strange. insulting. Yeah, I, I, exactly, and I think that he might agree with you. Um, so I said I wanted to talk about kind of the writing dynamic here. Uh, both of today's episodes reveal uh, a little more about that extensive rewrite process we've touched on in the original series. Um, remember, Gene Roddenberry himself is back in command here after his long absence from the original series. Walter Koenig says that he went through upwards of 12 rewrites in a grueling process with Gene. Of course, you had DC Fontana kind of uh, running interference there between the two to uh, pull it all together. Um, in the second episode we're looking at today, uh, The Magics of Megas 2, written by Larry Brody, um, he said that he had an excellent pitch meeting with Gene. Gene was very much intrigued at the idea of what if the Enterprise meets God? And it kind of changed a little bit, as we will see. But Brody was surprised to see that every single line of dialogue changed by the time the show made it to air. He was not too happy. He also went through several rewrites. He, of course, had encouragement and help from DC Fontana. Um, and even though he says the, the story basically stayed the same, Gene just couldn't help it but to get his hands on it and change it to make it more of what he wanted. His right to do so, Larry Brody still got the writer's credit on that episode. A um, couple of voice actors to point out, as we often do. James Doohan is the voice of Lucian in um, The Magics of Megas 2. And George Takei takes on an extra role. He is the voice of the disembodied Megan being in The uh, Magics of Megas 2. Cartoon number one, The Infinite Vulcan. Act 1. The Enterprise is checking out a previously unknown planet at the periphery of the galaxy. It's developed like a modern, civilized planet, though life readings are kind of jumbled. Spock says there's power coming from one of the buildings, though. Meanwhile, Sulu spots a small, unusual plant rooted in the ground until it decides to get up and walk around. Then when it stops, it's rooted again. Sulu shows it to the captain, though the captain's a bit more interested in the power reading and the probing of the landing party detected by Spock. Spock. 
Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go inside to check it out, leaving Sulu outside with his little plant pal. Inside, Spock finds a massive force field, apparently designed to protect the city in general, and the building in particular. Bones also picks up a humanoid reading of incredible strength on his sensors, but there's no time to go into that. The three men hear Sulu scream and run outside. What they don't know is that he picked up the mobile plant and suffered some sort of sting. What they do know is that he's been poisoned. With no clue what it is or how to stop it, McCoy starts injecting Sulu with whatever he's got. No good. Sulu will be dead in a minute. Well, perhaps these five plant people can help. Agmar is their leader's name. He offers to help and moves in to do so. McCoy argues, but Kirk says, let him try it. And it works. While they work, Spock is analyzing Agmar and his friends. They are basically intelligent plants. With Sulu on the mend, Agmar welcomes Kirk and the crew to the planet Phylos. Agmar and his, uh, let's call them people, saw them coming on scanners, but they're skittish of aliens and wanted to lay low until they knew what was what. They were able to heal Sulu because they've had dealings with humanoid aliens before. And they've got some pretty snazzy tech, including the voter that's translating for them. The history of the beings of Phylos is kind of sad. A human came, bringing sickness and death, though he also worked to save the ones he could from his disease. The disease he brought was harmless to humans, but not native to Phylos. Just then, more plants. These are scary, though. They look a bit like dragons, and they fall upon the landing party. The crew is defenseless, under a weapons deactivator, according to Agmar. The four are held down, though three are released as the dragons carry Spock away. Agmar says Spock has been chosen by the Master to serve a greater cause. The Master has been looking for years for someone like him. And here's the Master now, standing at least a couple of stories tall, though human. He introduces himself as Dr. Stavos Coniglius V. Nice to see you, Captain Kirk. Leave now. Kirk says he won't go without Spock, though Coniglius V says Spock is now his. Now beat it. The dragon things swoop back in, and Kirk relents. Three to beam up. Act two. The only historical reference anyone can find to anyone called Coniglius is from the Earth Eugenics Wars. Dr. Stavos Coniglius had planned to build a master race of clones, though, oddly enough, this was deemed anti-humanistic. He was banned from community and just kind of disappeared. Of course, that was hundreds of years ago. That Coniglius would be dead. But his shtick was cloning. So Coniglius V must be his clone. Meanwhile, Kirk seems to be working on a few plans. The weapons deactivator works even on the ship's phasers. They can fire, but they don't come close to hitting the city. They'll have to go back to the planet and get Spock in person. He's got Scotty working on some secret device, and McCoy is going on about how one of his great-great-granddaddies was a great at gardening. Okay. Kirk, McCoy, and Sulu beam back down and find something new. A fleet of rocket ships that looks like it may have been ready to swarm the galaxy decades, maybe even centuries ago. Maybe the disease brought by Coniglius disrupted that plan. Kirk finds Agmar and incapacitates him. He says they need Spock back, though Agmar says that's impossible. The Vulcan-human blend of wisdom, sense of order, and strength makes Spock perfect to carry out the Philosians' work. Spock and the Master will carry on where they could not. Agmar says he'll show them that Spock is safe, though. Cue Admiral Akbar. It's a trap! Agmar leads the men down into the depths of the planet and turns off the lights. There they are beset upon by the dragon things, though they manage to escape and find Spock. Unconscious. His mind drained. 
Over him stands the giant clone Caniclius V, and next to him, a giant clone, Spock II. Act 3. Time to put Kirk's plan into action. It turns out the things Scotty was building were basically plant sprayers, and McCoy dug up a plant spray recipe from one of his great-great-granddaddies. So they're basically flooding the room with a homemade weed be gone. And that does it. No plants are harmed in the filming of this cartoon, but they're no longer a threat either. Kirk orders Bones to get Spock so they can get out of here, but Bones says Spock will be dead soon. That whole mind drain thing? Yeah, Caniclius Five is back. He says that Spock's mind hasn't just been drained, it's been transferred. Cloning only copies the brain, it doesn't fill it. So small Spock's essence, his very being, had to be transferred to big Spock too. Kind of on beach ball right now, though, it's still uploading. Kirk moves to take small Spock anyway, but big Spock blocks him. He orders him out of the way, but still uploading. When that's done, Kirk tries a bit of word jujitsu with the clone. What's the point of killing one Spock to make a bigger Spock? That's a senseless killing of small Spock, and Vulcans aren't into senseless killing. Back above the planet, Scotty and Uhura are trying to get in touch with the landing party at the prearranged time. Kirk tells Spock 2 to answer the call. He does, and Uhura tells him to tell the captain that she's found out more about Caniglius. He wanted his cloned master race to act as a peacekeeping force throughout the galaxy. Gotta go now. We're about to lose all of our power. Wow. Seriously? Caniclius V, there has been peace in the Federation for over a hundred years. And Great Big Spock? You know the whole Idic thing. Infinite diversity and infinite combinations. Could you and Caniclius imposing your way, the Philosian way, or even the Vulcan way really lead to a peaceful galaxy? Spock 2 doesn't think so. And you, Philosians, why are you going along with this? Ah, funny story. That's what all those rocket ships were for. We were going to be a galactic peacekeeping force. Until we were wiped out by a microbe. No, I haven't seen War of the Worlds. Is it good? Caniclius has had enough. He'll have his army of big Spocks, and Kirk won't stop him. He breaks the mind transference machine, seemingly ending any hope of getting little Spock back to rights. Kirk charges at Caniclius, but Spock too stops him. Hey, remember all that peace talk? Yeah, think about that. Hey, you know what we haven't done since last episode? A Vulcan mind touch. Big Spock re-imprints small Spock's mind with his essence. So now there are two Spocks in the galaxy? Crazy. Spock too says not to worry about all this master race business. There won't be one. Nor will there be an army of Spocks... This gives Caniclius a bit of an identity crisis. If everything he was supposed to do has already been done, what's he supposed to do? Spock 2 says they can try to help the Philosians rebuild their race and society. Wanna? Kirk says that sounds good, as does Caniclius. Kirk says he'll let the Federation know what they're up to. He thinks they'll be cool with it. The end. Ken, yeah. I love, I love asparagus. I was very excited about this episode. I am. Yeah, I'm wondering why we've never seen that costume at the. Um, oh man! At any convention, and I'm thinking at any about convention. it. I'm thinking yeah, about I think it. you should. Yeah, I think about it. basically every time we come across a new alien, though, I'm like, that's what I'm going to be. <laughs> right. And then I show up with no costume and just you know stand around and uh, talk. By which right. I mean drink. By which I mean talk. 
<laughs> um, is another one of those great uh, advantages of animation that you can animate anything. You say, no, if we're going to make it alien, we're going to make it totally alien, and we'll yeah. have walking asparagus. Yeah, why and, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, definitely more effective than that giant walking carrot in Lost in Space. Um, oh, speaking of plants, that, that little plant that uh, infects sulu at the very beginning yeah uh, first of all i would just stay away from any plant that gets up out of the ground and walks toward me i would yep. not think it is cute i would not reach down but uh again starfleet teaches people to do touch taste <laughs> experience everything that you can on an alien planet yeah um they're, that, they're very lucky he didn't put it straight in his mouth <laughs> they are they are um that little plant is called the retlaw you, you get it no get it, it it's walter Spelled backwards. Oh, look at that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he administers a little sting. Yeah. Yes, he does. Yes, <laughs> he does. That's kind of an odd thing. I don't think I would uh-huh. name it after me if I were doing that, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> Plus, who wants a plant called Neck? Not right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, Spock gives the whole uh, 70% of the brain thing. That, that that's a fallacy that humans only use three to ten percent, but but I, I guess it was sort of more popularly known at the time that oh, wow these creatures must be really advanced they use seventy percent of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, if we only use three to ten percent of our brains, we we would not be functional enough to know or to even suppose that we were only using three to ten percent of our brains. Um, and I can I bet you were very excited. To notice that uh, McCoy again had absolutely no hesitation about shooting up a hurt crewman with something yep. in his hypo spray. Pusher McCoy. I have had no idea no what's idea. happened to him. I have no <laughs> idea what he's been poisoned with. Let's see if this will work. <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't work because it'll take too long. Are you sure it's because it'll take too long, or because there are some you know contraindications with the you know, the one medicine you just shot him with with whatever's in in his system? Right. Yeah. No. Just I got a hypo at the ready. That's the thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a question about Star yeah. Trek history? And maybe we can, you know, come back to this at some point mm-hmm. at the end of all of it. Mm-hmm. Um, was anybody actually killed in the eugenics war? I mean, any of the warlords? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> because, right. Because Khan got away. Yeah. And uh, of course, Green didn't necessarily get away. Green was reproduced probably on the planet although maybe it was green we could never really say in the one with uh abraham lincoln and uh right and you know the not infinite vulcan yes the savage curtain thank you very much uh the first vulcan maybe the premier vulcan but not the not the infinite one Mm. um yeah and then yeah just they just seem to get away all the time and now here's coniclius and and I'm also a little weirded out by there are times especially in um space seed where they're all sitting around talking about the eugenics warlords, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. to the point that Scotty is always like, yeah, Khan always seemed like the cool one to me. You know, I mean, so they can they can name them. Right. And yet they come across a clone of one and they're like, Caniclius, Caniclius, doesn't ring a bell. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Was he, was yeah. he maybe not a warlord? Was he just like a war duke or something? Right. Like not, not quite as good, left early because everybody was like, yeah, get out of here. Yeah. Because that's that's really all that happened. He was banned from community is what they said. Which is basically wonder, like excommunicated, it sounds like, or, or sent, you know, sent off planet. Yeah. But not killed. No. Just, just sent away. No, I, I have to wonder about how that whole thing works, because it, it, it seems obviously these people are considered to be very dangerous right. in, in one way or another. And, uh, okay, so maybe we give ourselves points for not just killing them, right. but, but we are going to great lengths to, um, you know, 
pack them up and and get them out of the way um, only to be found at some later date by somebody else where the problem might even be worse. Mm, Yeah. Let's hope that doesn't happen sometime in the future. So that's yeah. that's some bad thinking. But I'm glad you mentioned it. I mean, it, it is our old friend eugenics uh, that we've dealt with a few times in Star Trek. Um, and uh, like you said, we, we reference eugenics wars. We we don't reference Khan, but we know where he fits in to that story. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't sure exactly the advantage of being gigantic if you're <laughs> if you're Kinnicleus five. Um, yeah. And immediately Spock too, also gigantic. No, I, yeah, I, I yeah. get the advantage of having Spock 2 be gigantic. You've got to feel kind of like a, you know, like you stick out a bit if you're Kinnicleus 5, right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, he wants a friend. Right, So, yeah, and a friend your size, you know, because yeah. he's got the plant friends, but, you know, they're kind of tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, so Spock 2, let's just go ahead and jump jump him straight up to that size. I will say uh-huh. the one reason I can see, I mean, they are building, theoretically, a galactic police force. Right. You want that to look impressive. Right. Well, yeah, true. But but you also need to fit into the places that you are policing. Well, there's a problem. <laughs> right. that's, that's true. So that's you true. need to build giant spaceships. And then when you end up at, say, Earth, yep. um, you, you can't even, like, take a meeting with somebody. You might honestly just be giving them a bigger target to hit. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, he is the fifth clone. There might be a little, you know, you saw multiplicity, right? Yeah, we're all right. Yeah, yeah. There yeah. might be there might be a little bit of a problem. You know, a copy of a copy of a copy. After a while, yeah. yeah. It, it is interesting that you know, it, if you go back to Space Seed, Khan offered order. That's mm-hmm. what he says. I, I offered them order. Um, Caniclius offered peace. Um, only he he seems to be offering it in the same way that Khan wanted to offer things, which right. was um, under threat of painful rule. <laughs> well, except I got the impression that Khan. I mean, well, here's the thing. Okay, so Caniclius wanted a master race, and then he changed it once he got to the plant planet of wanting it to be a master race of peacekeepers. Mm-hmm. Khan mm-hmm. offered order, but I never heard him say anything about, we want to keep everybody in line. The impression that I got was, you know, the week will be, in, uh, the week will be uh, weeded out mm-hmm. by Khan, which, is, which yeah. is a bit different than at least Caniclius V's plan. Yeah. I actually, well, I actually, forgive me, I actually wondered whether Caniclius V, well, when Caniclius showed up, was that his plan, or did his plan change, you know, because he felt something for the Philosians that he had accidentally killed? I, I got the impression that that the plan had not changed, that the plan was always the same, because remember, Kirk said basically, okay, the things you are referencing might have happened 100, 200 years ago. Hmm. So, so you, your perception of how things work may be based on bad information. So I, I got the impression that the plan was still the same well he said i just got the impression that his sense of what's going on in the rest of the galaxy was the same we don't we're we're not really given to know whether his plan is exactly the same either way his plan is his plan when we find him i was just Mm kind of curious if if his plan changed because because it's kind of weird right that you know he shows up with the exact same plan that the plants have Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i mean one of them must have and yet they both say no that was my idea (laughs) <laughs> right. right. I was going to do that. I was going to do that too. Oh, we should do that together. Except there are only five of you. Yeah. And and I'm big, but there's yeah. just one of me. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, I, I really, uh, I, I thought of you quite a lot while previewing this episode, the, the many times before getting to today's show that, you know, for a cartoon, again, a, a Saturday morning cartoon, we're in some deep existential territory again. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got these shades of Spock's brain 
with the the idea of Spock's brain being used again, and uh, and his is the, the 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 perfect mind and actually the perfect package with his Vulcan and and human physiology, uh, and, and then we get the the whole idea of knowledge. And, and sort of identity being separate from the meat or the, the structure of the brain, because we, we've got to get that information from little Spock to big Spock and then back to little Spock again through some sort of transference. Um, and, and then we have this whole idea, this whole concept of maintaining a kind of immortality through genetic duplication. We're, we're already on the fifth generation of Caniclius. Although maybe not perfect, I you know as you said the movie Duplicity maybe uh, spells that out better. Multiplicity. Um, multiplicity. That's right. That's right. We had, there were many Michael Keatons, and there were. God knows we need more Michael Keatons. <laughs> um, and, but then then we have this idea that the original is dead once the duplicate is made. Yeah, and in another episode, you mm-hmm. might have had an argument between Spock and Kirk about that. Uh, Kirk is, I mean, this does go back to Spock's brain, and I want to say there was another episode as well where Spock's, there was, which one was it, where Spock basically got transferred into somebody else? What do you think about uh, uh, Sargon and uh, and all of his people? I I can't remember exactly, but I know we've had this argument before of Kirk not understanding that Spock is Spock no matter which body Spock inhabits. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a technology that we have today, but in in the the alien races that, that Kirk keeps bumping into, that is a technology that they have. Yeah, but he's like, like when he's standing there saying to Big Spock, "Does it make any sense to kill little Spock? This is a senseless killing." I would think Big Spock would say, "I'm not dead, (laughs) (laughs) right? Because it's still me. I mean, that's I'm not in that body anymore. I'm in this body now. You know, of course, they do solve that fairly quickly by by doing the mind, mind Vulcan mind touch back onto him. I will say. I do I, I do begin to understand as we watch more of the animated series, I understand why Gene Roddenberry might not want this to be canon. <laughs> not because it's not quality. Yeah. But don't tell J.J. Abrams that there is a giant Spock out there as well. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Now, maybe that was disrupted by the timeline thing with Nero and all that yeah, stuff. But yeah. how many Spocks are we going to end up with? Oh. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. So and, I can sort of... There are threads. I mean, all through the original series, there are threads that never get sort of woven back in. Yeah. But then if you add in all the ones from the cartoon, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. I, I can sort of see if if for nothing else but housekeeping, I can see why he might not want it to be canon. I, again, I would maintain that a fifty foot Spock is kind of useless. Like even if you know that you got one somewhere, really, what are you going to do with it? Because you, you can't even sit him at a table. You I, know. <laughs> so, well, you need a big table. Yeah, well, and then you're you're on the the tiny end of the table in your tiny little chair. It's just uh, it's a mess. Yeah, yeah, it's a mess. Um, but hey, at least we got a shout out for Itic. Yes, we did in this episode. A nice little explanation of Itic. Um, so I'll, I'll give them props for that. Even though we now have a fifty foot Spock on the loose somewhere in the galaxy. I will. I will say there was one other thing that occurred to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I kind of got a tiny bit of uh, Scotty. Uh, Scotty Caniclius combo on this. Uh, so, Caniclius Five is doing his whole thing of like, well, this is the way the world is. This is the way you know society is. This is the way the galaxy is, and I'm going to keep mm-hmm. working on this. And Kirk says, yeah, it's not really like that anymore. And Caniclius is like, no, 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 it is. I know it is. And you know, he's willing to wreck everybody, you know, to do what it is mm-hmm. he thinks he needs to do. 
Um, Scotty is supposed to call Kirk, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he ends up expending almost all of their power. He like basically concentrates all of the power on the Enterprise in this one beam so that they can dig down deep into the planet so he can get in touch with Kirk. Right. And and nearly strands the Enterprise. Yeah. There's a little there's a little terrier quality to both of them at one point. <laughs> that I'm wondering, I mean, Scotty is smart enough to go, ah, you know, maybe it's not worth wrecking the whole ship. I could send another guy. You mm-hmm. know? I mean that mm-hmm. that seems to me it might have been a that's not a big theme in the episode. It's more like I was just I was just watching it going, Oh, well great, Scotty's standing up for what he believes in, but I mean this is even worse than like, you know, I mean, he's just really he's he's jeopardizing everybody's life to get a message through. Ah, that's really true. Yeah, and there might I, be there might be another way to send the message. Skywriting, for example. <laughs> well, except they're down below the. Hmm, yeah, yeah. No, it just yeah, it just it struck me. Uh, it struck me as a little um a little troubling that he was he was willing to risk the whole ship for that. Well, other than learning a lesson about not uh, risking the whole ship, uh, any other lessons that you might have picked up? I know that there were uh, some that I picked up that I, I thought were kind of interesting to grapple with. But uh, in summary, any lessons from uh, the Infinite Vulcan for you? Lots of stuff to consider. Would I say a lesson? I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. there was a there's a Stephen Colbert had a great comment one time about George W. Bush. Mm-hmm. He said, "This is a man." who will believe on Wednesday what he believed on Monday, and it doesn't matter what happened on Tuesday. (laughs) There's a little bit of that with Coniglius. I mean, you know, Uh thinking that you know and deciding and then being so headstrong, or again, you know, with the whole thing with Scotty, too, thinking that you know and being so headstrong and deciding that there's no other way to do things but the way you decided a long time ago, Mm -hmm. that's one lesson in there. I mean, don't, don't assume that the way you had it, you know, the way you had it in your mind is always going to be the way. Maybe step back and reexamine new, uh, Mm -hmm. new ideas every now and then. That's that's probably the chief one that I got. What about you? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm like you. I think there were a, a few interesting points to ponder, not necessarily uh, a you see Timmy moment, but um, the theme here, the idea of the peace under iron-fisted rule is no kind of peace at all. Um, don't necessarily see that it applies to kids, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe to me the interesting part was was that this is sort of good old-fashioned Star Trek. And and it shows that Walter was really paying attention to the original series, uh, and it's grappling with the ideas of freedom and and rule and authority and all of this. Um, I think there is a bit of that blind faith element going on here with the Philosians worshiping Caniculus as a savior, almost. Um, mm. Kirk, going back to what you said, you know, Kirk questions his information. <laughs> he says, uh, you know, we're we're at peace. You you've you haven't caught up. For the last couple of hundred years. And then the Philosians reject any possibility that Caniclius could be wrong. So um, I thought that was a, a good moment there. Um, and then uh, Kirk kind of further drives home the idea that peace can't be imposed. It must be agreed upon. Um, and, and in the end, you know, we, we see that Caniclius has a sort of uh, a moment of crisis where he, he says he has nothing to live for without his plan. You know, he, he's just solely living to execute his plan of being a galactic peacekeeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Spock, too, sets him on a more constructive path. He said, look, conditions have changed. Let's do something positive and construct- constructive. Let's help the Philosians. Um, so I thought all of those were good, good ways to sort of put a happy spin on the story, even if there isn't a uh, 
a, a really touching message for an eight-year-old. But when that eight-year-old grows up and he's grappling with things about uh, imposing peace through iron-fisted rule, then uh, maybe he'll give it a second thought. I will say, I would love to be on the transmission between Kirk and Starfleet and the Federation. <laughs> hey, guess what? We found one of the eugenics warriors. No, it's cool. He's like 50 feet tall now, but don't worry about it. He's got a hobby. So, <laughs> right. oh no, still cloning, but don't worry. I'm pretty sure <laughs> it's going to be fine this time. Keep your hands off of the gigantic clickety-clackety remote control. There's more mission log right after this. Planetarium with a Star Trek intergalactic projector. Enterprise approaching Big Dipper. Accurately shows all the constellations. These cards help you identify them. Enemy craft from Jupiter. While these light beam pointers let you play Star Trek like never before. Runs on 2D and 2AA cell batteries not included. Star Trek Intergalactic Projector comes with light beam pointers and identification cards by Migo. And now, back to Mission Log. Cartoon number two. The Magics of Magus 2. Act one. On this mission, the Enterprise is looking for evidence of the Big Bang. Well, not quite. They are looking for that place at the center of the galaxy where supposedly the galaxy began and where matter may still be being made. The captain said galaxy. His words, not mine. It's weird. It's cloudy. It's, it, it, it's windy. There are explody things all around. When the Enterprise starts shaking and zooming out of control... Everything's going haywire, but Spock navigates the middle of the storm. It's a little more quiet. Then all of a sudden, the Enterprise is whisked away to a colorful, bizarre place where the laws of physics don't quite apply. Ship systems fail. Life support, for one. Out of nowhere, a very muscular dude who happens to have goat legs appears on the bridge and with a wave of his hand brings systems back online. His name is Lucian, and he's awfully gregarious. He's got new friends. And he whisks away Kirk, Spock, and McCoy to the candy-striped planet below. Everything's just weird. Kirk looks like he's in a funhouse mirror. No prob. Lucian zaps him back into a more familiar form in order to sit out the commercial break. Act 2. Lucian starts showing off his home. Megas 2 to his new companions. He's made it appear a little more familiar. Trees, air, buildings, the whole thing. But he explains that magic is the norm here. It's not just a superstition like it was back on Earth. Everybody's doing magic all over the place. Women creating potions, wizards conjuring castles. Lucian shows that the people of Megas II are very peaceful and very advanced. They looked for companionship in other dimensions and ended up on Earth. But now Lucian's story gets a little sketchy. He won't tell too much about how his people fared on Earth, and suddenly he hides them back on the Enterprise as if their presence on Megas 2 is a danger. 
Spock starts playing around with the idea that while in this universe, everyone on board can exert a little magic. A few incantations and one pentagram later, Spock is moving the pieces on a chessboard with his mind. Everyone is in on the trick. Sulu conjures up a lady. When Lucian reappears, he chastises the crew from making themselves known, and the disembodied voice of one of the Megans starts threatening the Enterprise crew. Something about how this time they will pay. A flash of light later, and the crew find themselves in the stockades at Salem, Massachusetts, circa exactly the time they don't want to be there, which is when witches were being executed. Act 3. Now everything becomes clear about why the Megans left Earth. Asmodeus, the prosecutor, fills in the parts of the story that Lucian left out. When his people came to Earth, their powers were either exploited or looked upon with fear. The Megans were called devils and warlocks, and the people of Salem took things another step by killing them outright. They returned to Megas too when they could, but let's just say that when you see your fellow Megans executed, you develop a long-held grudge against earthlings. So begins the trial for what to do with these interloping humans. The Megans don't want to hurt the earthlings, and Spock is called to speak in defense of them. Lucian is first on the stand. He has an affinity for humans, as he likes their curiosity and generally gregarious nature. He says the Megans are too insular, whereas the humans are born explorers. Kirk is a little more pointed. He says all it will take is a scan of the ship computers to show how far humanity has come since the days of the Salem witch trials. Asmodeus accepts this, but then he turns the tables on Lucian for bringing these dangerous humans, and surely more to follow, into their world. He is condemned to the Phantom Zone. Well, not exactly, but it's like a solitary prison. Kirk tries to step up in his defense, but Asmodeus gives the big reveal we all knew all along that Lucian is the devil. And Kirk just brushes it off like he did with Apollo, that he's not interested in legends. He's interested in this living being. Kirk finds the whole treatment, well, inhumane, and he challenges Asmodeus with some magic of his own. He also throws a little of that famous word jujitsu his way, explaining that their cruel and unusual punishment will make the Megans just as bad as the humans they hate. Want to trump even that? Kirk is losing the battle, but he said he'd give his life to protect Lucian, who is innocent. Aha! We have a breakthrough moment. Now Asmodeus and the others are impressed and everyone is let go. The whole thing, even that last bit, was a test that humans would live up to their words. They did, and the Megans offer an open hand to Kirk and the rest of Earth. Spock brings it all home with something a little poetic. This was the second time Lucifer was cast out, and thanks to Kirk, the first time he was saved. The end. Do you mind if I correct you on one thing really quickly? Yeah, what's that? I think most of the trial was actually legit. But I got the impression that sort of that Lucian and the rest of them got together after they read the tapes and said, eh, this could still be a trick. I know Lucian didn't believe it was a trick. I know Lucian thought it was on the up and up. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Asmodeus said, oh, this last part was a test because we weren't sure, you know, your tapes could have been a ruse. You could actually right, still be right. as bad as you are. I didn't get the sense that the whole trial was, was – well, I mean, the whole trial is a test just because the whole trial is a test. I mean, yeah, yeah. trials are. But I didn't get the sense that Lucian was in on it that they were all in on it together 
until the very end, you know, the part with Lucian where they put him in the Phantom Zone. Good call that, by the way, the Phantom Zone. Uh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. Um, and, and he's already two-dimensional. So, uh, yeah, so that's that true. Fits. It's really not yeah. so much of a punishment now that you think about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Except he can't um, talk to anybody. Yeah, which is sad because that guy, he's a chatty, chatty. Oh, oh talk is he fellow. chatty? Oh, yeah. He's very um, chatty, John. <laughs> Friend um, John. I'm sorry. Friend John. Th- th- thanks to James Doohan for that voice. Yeah, yeah. that's crazy. Um, I, see, I got the impression that the whole thing, and including the bit with Lucian, was a test. J- j- yeah. Just based on the way Asmodeus delivered that line. Um, Asmodeus, by the way, uh, the voice done by Ed Bishop, who was Commander Straker on UFO. Uh, so that late 60s, early 70s, uh, uh, Jerry Anderson TV show that predated Space 1999. I probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but that's okay. It was a cool show. It was a cool looking show anyway. No idea um, what you're talking about. Well, he was a special guest star this week. Um, but yeah, I got the impression from his dialogue that uh, maybe the whole entire thing was a test. But I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I know what you mean. Well, it's not unlike last week's episode. I mean, it is what it is when we get there anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. you know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. Right. It just, um, it, it struck me as uh, being different. I got a question. Yeah, go ahead. How, so how big or small is the galaxy? Because <laughs> just last week we were at the periphery of the galaxy. Oh, and now we are at like the oh. dead center of, of the galaxy. Maybe the dead center of everything. Yeah. We've kind of, we've kind of gone back to our, uh, I don't want to say colonial. I don't want to say imperial. We're very me-centric in this episode, as as a galactic race. <laughs> we are. <laughs> because we are. because uh, humans now are hip to the fact that there's life on other planets, right? Yeah. I mean, Witness, for example, we got a Vulcan on our bridge, and we got one of those things with the three arms, and you know, there's a cat woman walking around here someplace. I mean, there's, there's right. lots of life besides what's on Earth. But Spock, who is you know the logical one, is like, oh, man, this is like where everything came from, the center of our galaxy. It's like mind-blowing, right? Yeah. Eh, it's also kind of not... True, yeah. necessarily, yeah. or uh, at all. We, we, we can't get science-y. We, we just can't with this episode. No, I mean, you can't I, with I, this episode. No, I, our galaxy, our galaxy, uh, upwards of 120,000 light years in diameter. And, and no, the, the galaxy did not start from the center of our galaxy. If we're kind of referencing back to the Big Bang, all of the galaxies and the materials and matter that came started there and went outward. And uh, it just uh, go to fill plate. Okay. Wait, so you don't know that it wasn't the center of our galaxy then. It wasn't the center of our galaxy. You don't camp. know that. <laughs> it was not the center of our galaxy. Okay. You show, um, you show me pictures of it not being the center of our galaxy and maybe I'll believe you. Maybe. Okay. All right. All right. But yeah, but to, your, to your point, to your point, the Enterprise is going all over the place. One yeah. day we're at the edge. And then remember our, our little disembodied friend from uh, the very first episode, Beyond the Farthest Star. He's like, hey, I'm really far out. All I want to do is get to the center. No. Can I hitch a ride? Too far. No. Maybe <laughs> he not, belongs with, with the Megans. We're not going there for a few more weeks. <laughs> yeah, at least like four weeks. Sorry, pal. Can't do it. Um, yeah, so that that bothered me. Uh, a little bit. Um, one thing that was interesting here is that if you go with the whole multiverse theory, but then again, this show isn't exactly positing a multiverse. They're just saying we're in the center of our galaxy. No, they're, uh, they're positing a multiverse. I mean, Lucian does say in well, our, he does in say, our yeah, universe, yeah, yeah. things happen this way versus your universe where it happens that way. In That's fact, what did Spock say? For, for the Federation scientists to have been right, um, the center of the galaxy would have to transcend space and time as we know it. Right. So, I mean, right, there's, right, definitely, right. there's definitely a multiverse thing going on here. 
you just you get to it through the center of our galaxy right to this well that's one um, way yeah, <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, so we're going with the idea that the, the laws of physics would be entirely different in one of those other universes. And all it takes is just going to the center of the galaxy, and there you are. Yeah. You flashes a light later, and, and there you are. I don't um, see what your problem is. Oh, no. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I, they, they, they just, they got there. They just did. And then yeah. the Enterprise split in half, and then it's back together again. And You know, you know how they got there, right? They, they flew there. They believed that they, they could they get there. Because they're... as they believed, so shall they did. I, I knew that had to come. I yeah. just knew it. Absolutely. We're all learning from the Gorgon yeah. again. Well, we're all applying the Gorgon's, you know, self-help stance. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. how magic works here. It's weird yeah. because Spock then has sort of like a like a like a D and D second edition idea of how magic works, right? He's right. Just like, oh, because here's the thing: Spock says all you have to do is believe. But the yep. thing is, it's kind of hard to show just believing in a cartoon, you know. Right. So you have right. so then you have to do like an incantation, but not you know, not like a Joss Whedon. We all know you know secret ancient runic words that have the incantation. Rather, you just have to say, "Hey, magic, come here." Yeah. Right. Kind of it. Yeah. yeah, he does a little incantation. He draws the pentagram on the uh, on the the, weird, the deck plating, right? Yeah. Which is weird. It's a little weird. It, it's, I, I assume that this show, the airing of this show, predated D and D. No, no, D and D was created in '69. Really, D and D was not quite as popular either. '69 or '74, so it may have been around the same time. For some reason, I have it in my head that it is '69. In fact, if you keep talking. I will look it up. No, seriously. I mean, I, mean, I, I wasn't. The, I wasn't really aware of it until you know the early '80s. I think that's when right. it really caught on, and people were just well, crazy about it. Part of that has to do with your age too, though, right? Well, it does. It does. Yeah, yeah. but but it was just sort of as a popular culture thing. I mean, what I'm leading up to is that it, that whole thing in the late '70s up to the late '80s, early '90s, the the satanic panic. That uh, that anything, you know, if somebody drew a pentagram, or whatever, oh, they have to be Satan worshippers, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And this, th- this I thought was kind of a, a little more benign. It should say, like, oh, here's something creepy looking or weird and magical. should also be remembered, though, uh, first published in 1974, my bad. Oh, okay, there you go. So I so thought it was right. earlier than that. I apologize. Um, here's one thing that you have to remember, though. You and I were both uh, born south of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. I don't know that the that the Satan panic thing happened everywhere the way it happened there. Oh right, right, right. And I can't I can't say because that's where you and I grew up. But I know that both you and I growing up in in, in you know pretty much the same part of the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. That was a a big deal, especially around that time. Let's talk so about some of the some of the higher ideals. Though let's talk about some of the higher ideals, like that's... like like Kirk saying, "Look, we're awesome now. Look at General Order Number One." He does. Yeah, the prime directive. Look at that. How we won't interfere in any other, you know, race and, and what they do. And don't look at what we did with the feeders of all. And there are probably some other, like, they don't even look at my captain's log just to be safe. Yeah. But overall, we have this idea that's, like, totally awesome that we're mostly going by. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I like that. I like that we had a, a good solid shout out to the prime directive. Yeah. Kirk really spelled it out for us. That was excellent. Um, also, Spock is the best trial lawyer ever. <laughs> I want it because that was the fastest trial in the world. Because if you say to an audience of eight to 10 year olds, this week's episode will be a courtroom drama. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're not going to be interested. But the way Spock just made it zip along, he was good. 
Well, they might be more interested in the courtroom drama, too, if you could just make the, you know, witnesses appear as if by magic on the stand. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, Mm -hmm. and now we're waiting for them to walk up to the stand and waiting for them to get comfortable. (laughs) Not quite so much. Right. There's a lot that I liked here. There, there really is. And I don't want to kind of jump the gun and get into the lessons too much before we're ready to get into the lessons. But um, I, I mentioned that there, to me there is that kind of parallel to uh, Kirk confronting Apollo. Um, mm-hmm. Kirk tells Lucian we're not – we're regarding Lucian, what he says to Osmodius. We're not interested in legend. You know, I, I see Lucian as a being, as a living being who should have some rights here. And he's willing to to lay his life on the line to uh, to do that. And it kind of goes back to our whole discussion, our, our ongoing discussion about what's so great about the Corbomite maneuver. You know, again, Kirk just stepping up to the plate saying, here's the ideals that we hold. And I'm going to show you how important those ideals are. I will fight a losing battle <laughs> to defend those ideals. Right. That's kind of nice. And then um, I, I think the other important thing here um, – uh, that Kirk calls out the Megans for acting out of fear instead of thought or respect. Um, and very pointedly says, you will become as bad as the thing that you fear by going down this path. And there they have. Um, it took Lucian to kind of shake things up and then Kirk to, to sort of drive home that message. Hmm. Yeah. I got to say, this is not a, uh, this is not a crappy episode at no. all. And you no. could you can sort of make it one. And I know that when you and I were first reading about this episode and on, on mm-hmm. first glance, mm-hmm. I was very much looking forward to you watching this episode. I'll be honest. <laughs> um, well, I'll, I'll wrap it up for you in a bit. But yeah, so <laughs> <But> continue. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke, it seemed to me, sort of like addressed one thing in this in Childhood's End. And Arthur C. Clarke is a sci-fi master. Now, that's not to say that you know Gene Roddenberry isn't. But when you approach the cartoon, you don't expect quite as much. And I will say... Again, we're only, I guess, I don't know if this is the sixth episode or the eighth episode. I guess the eighth episode of the cartoon that we've watched. Um, Yeah, the stuff that they have brought from the original series, and they've actually been able to sort of boil it down. I mean, you're you're almost getting like a you're almost getting like a concentrated version of a lot of this stuff. Because you mentioned the last episode, we got a you know quick examination of Idik. This episode, we're getting a quick examination of the Prime Directive and what that's about. The devil is not the devil because the devil is the devil. I mean, the way the way Childhood's End did it, if memory serves, and it's been a very long time since I've read it, mm-hmm. but the way Childhood's End did it, if memory serves, there were these aliens that came to Earth, and Earth was not ready for them, and they you know, like freaked people out. But here's the thing. They looked like the devil. And we didn't have an idea of what the devil was before those aliens. That's how scary <laughs> these aliens were mm-hmm. to us, that we then ended up with an idea of the devil. And the way they come back to Earth, they sort of uh, have to skirt around that. We don't find out for a very long time why they're just sort of hovering over our cities but not showing themselves. They're basically waiting for anybody who knows what the idea of the devil is to die before they come out. Otherwise, people would have freaked out again and assumed that it was Satan. Okay, so in addition to that, in addition to sort of giving it its its bona fides because it tackles it in the same way that a science fiction master does, this is actually an incredibly subversive episode by many standards. Here, here. You got the devil telling kids, I'm just like you. I'm curious. I like to have fun. (laughs) And there is really nothing wrong with being curious and wanting to have fun, says the devil. Mm -hmm. Um, In addition to that, uh, it calls children to question what they're told about good and evil. And, And if you're calling children to question what they've been told about good and evil, you're basically calling them to question the tenets of their religion. At yeah. nine o'clock on a Saturday morning when their parents are still in bed. 
I mean, it's just kind of nutty. Now, granted, we've, we've said it repeatedly. This was not just for kids. This was a continuation of Star Trek. But there were a lot of people, I feel certain, who just sit their kids in front of it because, eh, it's cartoons. It's going to be like, you know, that dune buggy show next. So who mm-hmm. cares, really? Um, there is also something, it seems to me, very much for us today. This episode is all about the vilification of science. Now, science in this episode is represented by magic. Mm-hmm. But let's go ahead and take them out or take those two things out. Here are these smart, powerful beings, right? And there are these other beings who want to use these uh, powerful, intelligent beings. They want to use their power and their intelligence to rise above their fellow men. And when that doesn't work for them, they want to get people to fear that power and that intelligence. Mm-hmm. So they want to get power either by having the cool stuff that the cooler people have or by telling all of the other people to fear the cooler people. And yeah. and I don't like the term cooler, but I mean, this, this really is, it seems to me just straight up about the vilification, uh, vilification of, uh, of science because you had the, the Megans back in 1695, yeah. you know, freaking people out because they, they, they couldn't use them. And so instead of using them, they then, you know, made everybody else fear them. And, and thus, you know, ran out any benefit that we might have had from them, which doesn't sound like anything that ever happens today at all. <laughs> right, right. Not at all. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. When you and I looked at the kind of the initial synopsis, and I think just on first glance, so oh, they, they go meet the devil. Whatever. I, I think we both kind of rolled our eyes. And, and then we got to watch this a few times. And uh, I really appreciated the story here. As I said earlier, um, Larry Brody pitched this idea. And Gene Roddenberry is always fascinated with the idea. Well, what if the Enterprise crew meets God? Well, we can't quite do that on a Saturday morning. <laughs> but yeah. um, and this is a theme that Gene Roddenberry would come back to later. We will talk about that when the time is right, when we get to that. Um, but what we can do is explore the idea of uh, a mythological character, this place in the guise of the devil, which is kind of funny as well. Okay, well, we can't talk about God on a Saturday morning, but we'll put the devil right there in front of you and, uh, and talk about that. But then Kirk does the same thing that he did to Apollo, where he he humanizes and demystifies and takes away sort of the the supernatural element of that and says, this is a being. And this is a being that was misunderstood, and our placement of that being was misplaced. So now we're going to undo that. And this is, this is, hey, this is how we look when we are more advanced and more uh, able to accept that there are things in the universe that we can learn rather than fear. Um, And I I really like your take on that as well about um, science being represented by the magic of this other world um, or this other universe. I I thought that kind of hit the nail on the head of something that I was trying to formulate and didn't quite get to. Um, And and they set you up for that when, I mean, when Lucian says, you superstitiously call it magic. mm -hmm. I mean, so he, Mm -hmm. he's blowing off the idea of magic. I mean, they just keep using that term, it seems, because that's a term that, you know, the crew of the enterprise is going to get. Yeah. It's a term that we understand, but right. in their universe, they, they, they just simply have different rules. Right. And those rules can be learned and exploited in that other universe. Yeah. Um, All you have to do is believe you can believe them. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Another interesting element here that I thought was that Star Trek is on trial 
familiar territory for Star Trek, uh, a theme that will get explored over and over again. And, and we got to revisit a little Kirk word jujitsu in both episodes this week. Um, and, uh, you know, again, Kirk shows compassion for Lucian. One might even say sympathy for the devil. <laughs> I had to, Ken. I had to. I've been uh, waiting. I'm going to have that in my head. You will. Oh, that's so. <laughs> probably I'll probably have that in my head until uh, next week. We're not ready there, though, are we? Are we there yet? I think we're there unless we get, unless we got another thing to bring it home. Well, I think we got to say whether we liked them or we didn't. I really liked them. Yeah, uh, both of them. Uh, well, I particularly like the magics of Megas Two. Um, I think I like the Infinite Vulcan a little less, um, but I was very appreciative of the uh, the tie-ins to other Trek. The idea that we touch base with the eugenics war, that we have some heady, deeply sci-fi stuff about moving conscience around and copying and cloning, uh, but it doesn't quite hold up. I think the magics of Megas Two is really provocative. I think. What's weird is I think they're fine in different ways. I think the mm-hmm. Infinite Vulcan actually it does hold up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the Magics of Megas Two almost has a Smock's brain problem. It's mm-hmm. it's like almost too over the top. Oh wait a minute. Okay, so it's the devil. Oh wait, now they're in Salem. Okay, there's ah, uh, you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah, you, get, yeah. you get sort of that first moment, like you and the Omega Glory. The flag comes <laughs> right. out. You can't see anything else. There, I mean, the, the icons in this um, in this episode are so are so you know big that mm-hmm. it, it it there is a risk that somebody is going to look at it you know in the background. They're gonna have they're gonna be doing something else while they're watching it. They're not gonna take that much out of it. If you go back and really pay attention, there is absolutely a lot there, but I might, I might almost put the two episodes, well, The Magics of Magus 2 definitely has much more important things to say, but I, I, I really think they're both good episodes. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think Magics is a little too on the nose for those reasons you pointed out, but I, I'll give them credit for that only because, again, we're looking at this wide audience from young kids who maybe, maybe have heard about this or will hear about this in school, that it's sort of like, what is the worst example from history we can pick of letting our fear run away with our rationality um, and our understanding of the world then be centered around this supernatural thing instead of digging deep to find out what the underlying causes are. So um, I, I get that. I, I get why they went with that choice. And it, it didn't make me tune out uh, the same way that the American flag did in Omega Glory. But uh, I, I get and I appreciate that point because uh, I know where you're coming from on that. And now, if you will let me get on to my week of having sympathy for the devil stuck in my head. <laughs> Until next week, when we talk about Once Upon a Planet and Mud's Passion. Music for Mission Log provided by Big Gorgon Trio. Find their self-titled album on iTunes. Additional music provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. And from the album Messages by Key Theory. Free to download at kitheory.com. Okay, boys and girls. Fun's over. Time to take down that pillow fort. I am not kidding. And transmission. <laughs>